you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to 2 Kings 22? 2 Kings 22. And if you're joining us for the first time or maybe the first time in a long time, we are in the last Sunday of a three-week series. Chris alluded to this earlier. We've been looking at major hinge points in our lives, particular times where we go through difficult seasons of struggle and adversity things that maybe hurt us or at least get our attention, some things that sadden us or cause us to flinch a little bit with our faith. And sometimes we're at this fork in the road and we don't know exactly what to do with it. And we have disappointment or or pain, even what we just sung about, the grief and the change. We're not exactly sure how to handle complexity in our life. Sometimes it's new, sometimes it's old. I know there's tendencies in our heart to do a couple things with that when we go through those difficult times. We have a tendency... We do to panic, to go, oh my goodness, what, what is going on? I don't know how to handle this. I don't even have categories for this particular struggle. And so one temptation we might have when we deal with those difficult times is to panic. Another might be, though, to pull away, to kind of passively resign ourselves. It's not going to get any better. There really isn't any hope. Or maybe a tendency we have is to kind of decide we're going to problem solve here or misfix it or Mr. Fix it and we're going to get to the bottom of it and we're going to get this taken care of. If that's any of your responses, I'm not surprised because frankly, that's the way I respond as well. Sometimes I feel like I can do all three of those things at one time. Like I can panic and despair and try to fix it all, all at the same time because my emotions and my feelings can become, and even my thinking can become such a mess. But is that the way it's supposed to be? Does God have different directions to point us? Are there ways that we ought to be training our heart to respond instead of those ways? That's what we've been asking ourselves. Are there questions that we can prompt so that there's just some new ways of handling some of the difficult things we face in life? And what we've been doing is we've been taking one big question and then pairing that with a story in the Old Testament. They've all come from 2 Kings. So our first big question that we looked at is one thing you can do is you can stop and you can ask, where is God in this? Where is God in this? This is where we started. We looked at the story recorded in 2 Kings 6 of a prophet named Elisha who was surrounded by an enemy army and his servant was panicking and saying, what are we going to do? And and Elisha prayed and said, Lord, show him. Show him what's surrounding us. And there was an angel army surrounding Elisha. And we were reminded in that moment, we can ask ourselves, okay, where is God in this? And the answer we're going to come to, if, we're, if our head's on straight and our heart's in the right place, we're going to come to this conclusion. God is present, not absent, and he's powerful, not weak. God is present and he's powerful. Where is God in this? He's present and because he's present, He's powerful. We taught ourselves to ask another question, and and these are the questions on your card. So the question we asked ourselves last week was, okay, we ought to prompt ourselves to say, what can and what should I be asking God for? As you say, oh, we're talking about prayer here, and that's true, but I want to make sure we don't have this transactional view of prayer where we 
something gets like put in a vending machine and out comes this. So if we pray the right thing, we get the result. The prayer is about a relationship, not about that transaction. And so we're asking God, personally asking our Heavenly Father for things. So what should we be asking him for? And we looked at a few things last week from a story in 2 Kings 22, a story of Hezekiah, where he asked the Lord for some things in his emergency. He asked for the Lord's attention. So we can ask God for that, his attention on us. Lord, incline your ear, like turn your ear my direction so that you'll hear my prayers or put your eyes on me so that you can see what I'm going through. Lord, see me, notice me what's going on here. Then we can ask the Lord for his help. We can name that very specifically. Lord, this is what I'm struggling with and we don't have to be embarrassed about that. We can name that before the Lord and we can also say in the end, we want your glory to be seen. So we saw this from... Uh, Second Kings last week. We want his glory to be seen through this. I want to finish our series today in much the same way, pairing a question with one of these stories in the Old Testament in Second Kings here. And I, I do want the scripture read, but and we'll be reading from Second uh, Kings 22, but can I set it up a little bit just so we understand when we hear it, what all is going on? This is like 2,600 years ago, and times were very different than even what we know now, in some ways. The people of Israel, so 2 Kings is mostly about the the people of Israel, and they had been on a centuries-long moral decline, spiritual decline, social decline, political national decline since the time of King David and Solomon. This has been going on for centuries. There had been like little signs of grace where the decline was not as steep, but it had been going downhill for many years. Might be a time where a few people would turn back to God, but by and large, there was this wholesale abandonment of God by his people. The leaders, the priests, even the prophets sometimes were false prophets. And where this is in the timeline is within a generation, there are just going to be mass deportations from out of Israel. Jerusalem's going to be emptied like a wasteland. The Babylonian Empire is going to come and the lights are going to be turned out on the nation of Israel. So that's where we are right here. It's just, we're just about a generation away from that happening in this story. So why is that significant to you in 2019? An ocean away. I mean, why do we even look at ancient Near Eastern kings and empires? Because this particular people in the ancient Near East were God's people. So they worship the true and living God. These are people that God had set his love on. Like we are the people of God whom God has set his love on. So there's correspondence there. There's things we can learn about our own walk with the Lord and our own tendencies. And God had given this people a special covenant. Well, we know something about God making a covenant with us. And and they had broken this covenant and betrayed and disregarded it. God had told them to love me with all your heart and they hadn't. They had pursued idols. They had, they had other things that had captured their attention in their mind. God had said, love your neighbor as yourself, and they hadn't. And so there's all sorts of social injustice, victimizing one another. When we choose that path away from God, there's not a thousand consequences. There are a million consequences. When we choose our own path, and God, surely we know this, right? God doesn't just wink and go, try better next time. Surely we know he couldn't be God and just like, sin, what sin? So you hurt a bunch of people. So you hurt yourself. So you wrecked this world I made. 
not a big deal to me. We know God doesn't do that. We know he can't do that. And so judgment is coming because sin hurts and it costs something. So in this midst of like judgment is coming, is there any hope for Israel? Would God even care about a person? Would God care about a king? And we find he does in this story in 2 Kings 22. So I'm going to ask uh, Robin to come up and read. She's going to be reading in verse 1 of 2 Kings 22. We're going to read uh, like this brief window of God's grace to the people of Israel. 2 Kings 22, 1 through 13. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the eighteenth year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, and the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. I'm really grateful for Robin reading that largely because I didn't have to read all those names. That was well done. Like, well, well done. Most of the time I teach and preach, I work and I study so that the main point of the message is also the main point of the passage. So I think that's a, a way to make sure we're not just hearing a few verses strung together, but you're getting the main point of the author, which is both human and divine. I am going to go down a little different path today, so I just wanted to note that because I observed something in this passage that while it's not the main point, I think it's an important point and significant point, and I really want to draw our attention to that. So before I do that, I do want to just acknowledge what the main point and kind of where this passage goes, what I actually see as the main point in the passage. It's not going to be the the focal point, but the main point here is the story of God's grace to a people and to a king. Josiah is this bright spot in the midst of just, you can read Second Kings this afternoon, it's very depressing, like as the lights go out, it's almost like a dimmer switch where it just keeps going darker and darker and darker. But Josiah has a deep recognition of sin and its consequences, and it's, it's so refreshing. He says, we've sinned and some things need to change. 
And Josiah gives careful attention to what the word of God says. They find a book of instruction and they say, here's an idea, let's do it. God's spoken, let's, let's obey him. Even at great cost, so there's willingness to obey God at great cost. There's a route that's hard. He's seeking to undo even what his father and his grandfather did. Spiritually, that was terrible for the country. He's trying to undo that. He didn't have to go down that path. And what you see, and I think the main point of this story is God's mercy and his grace. It's not unlike the whole story of the Bible where we see God's mercy and his grace. This story took place 600 years before Jesus came, but the basics of Jesus and his mission are are even present in this story. God gives grace. God shows grace to his people, and yet his people reject it and head down their own path. We put distance between ourselves and God and end up running headlong into things that harm us, harm others, bring God's judgment on us, deserve his wrath. And this story, kind of the the basic storyline is God intervening, God demonstrating his love for sinners, he does so by, by giving them grace. It, they couldn't save themselves, so he shows them you're on your own path and he stops them and arrests them on that path. There's grace when we give up our own way and we totally rely on him. He offers mercy upon repentance. That's what he does in the story. That's what he does with his people all throughout time. You know, we see the fullest picture of that in the cross, so we've sung about that, the cross the full picture of it where God sends Jesus to take our sin and God's wrath that we deserve upon ourselves, He takes upon himself. But we have a picture in Josiah of a king that for a brief moment in time leads the people in receiving mercy and grace. And that points us even to a greater king, Jesus, who goes to the cross and takes our place. I think there are driving main points of this story, but actually, as I read this story a little while back, something stood out to me, and it's what I want to share with you today. Because as I looked at Josiah's life, this eight-year-old king that God used in a miraculous way, I want you to look at who is near Josiah when all this is going on. He's eight years old when he becomes king, and he accomplishes a lot. And God does a great work, even in a very, very dark time. But what I notice is there are a lot of supporting actors and actresses in this story of Josiah. It is not just him alone. As a matter of fact, I know that because even in verse 1, his mom is mentioned, Jedidah. So his mom is mentioned, and often, often the moms would not be mentioned. Often the dad, the lineage would kind of be this king, then this king, then this king, then this king. But here, mom is mentioned. I don't know. It's not said whether she had a particularly godly influence on him, but it certainly makes me wonder why her name is mentioned for this boy that became king at eight years old. And I think I read of, in verse 3, the court secretary, Shaphan. And and you read about him, and he always seems to be forwarding the Lord's work. So yeah, Josiah gets credit as king, but... It says, then he sent Shaphan, and Shaphan did this and came back to the king. And like, all he's doing is like fanning the flame of God's good work. And then you keep reading in verse 3, and you find there's a high priest named Hilkiah. And it says he, they find the book of the law. Hilkiah finds the book of the law. Could it be that he loved God's law? He loved God's instruction. And he finally found there's the king who's going to listen to it. And so they find the law. I don't know. 
But he is the supporting actor in this massive revival and movement of God's people. So you have Josiah, but then you have mom. And how did God use her? We don't know. The scripture doesn't say. Shaphan, what about him? And then you have Hilkiah. Then you also have others, Ahikam and Akbor and Isaiah. And then in verse 14, Robin didn't read this, but it talks about the prophetess Huldah. And she doesn't shy away from pronouncing judgment and the words from the Lord. And I just look at this one person and I look around and there's so many people. So everywhere Josiah looked, he has people who are pointing him to deeper reforms and more repentance. Where did they come from? Who put them there in Josiah's life? Is it a coincidence? Is it just just the way it happened? Why is it, if it's that way, why when you read of other kings, there's none of these people around? I believe deeply when God does a work of grace, there is normally more than one person involved. So while God might work deeply in your heart, often there are others around you, surrounding you. And that's why I want to train us to ask one more question when you're dealing with the tough stuff. And that is this, who has God placed in my life for my good? Who has God placed in my life for my good? Let me say again, I'm not sure the role of the court secretary, the priest, the prophetess, but everyone in this story seems to be around Josiah for his good. So I want you to ask that question. When you have the spiritual emergencies, when you have the just unrelenting challenges, Who has God placed in your life for your good? It's God's mercy to us that he has put people in our lives. You do know it's God who said, it's not good for man to be alone. You remember the story of David and his friend Jonathan, and it says Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God, like his grip on God was strengthened because there was Jonathan. You do remember when Jesus sent out his followers the first time, he sent them out two by two. So there would be built-in encouragement and partnership. You do remember all the places in scripture where it's one another, one another, one another, which assumes it's not just you. It's not just you. There are others that are going to be highly vested in your spiritual growth, in your spiritual success. You do remember Paul in 1 Corinthians and Romans and Colossians talks about this fellow worker and this fellow worker and this fellow soldier, this co-worker, this person that is together with him for the gospel. You see, there may be seasons of loneliness, I, but I, I think the normal pattern that God intends, there may be seasons of isolation, but the normal pattern that God intends is for people to be invested in our lives and us to be invested in their lives, for you not to be in isolation, but for you to be in deep community so that you're not deceived by sin, so that you have other people encouraging you saying, let's make sure we're thinking about this the right way, so that you have people that are able to instruct you in the word of God. So my message my question today is actually not that simple. Who has, or it's not that complicated. Hopefully it is simple. Who has God placed in your life for your good? Who pours out God's grace to you? And maybe for you it's a spouse. 
I'm not going to assume that's the case for every single person in here. But maybe for you, that's a spouse. God has placed them in your life for your good. For your spiritual good. Maybe it's a parent. A father or a mother. Maybe it's another relative. Maybe it's just a friend that you go very deep with. Maybe it's a pastor or some sort of small group leader. Maybe it's a mentor you've had. Maybe it's an accountability partner whom you have developed a relationship with. Who's that person that reminds you when you need to hear it, don't run from God's grace? Don't run. Who's the one that tells you, you know you have a heavenly father that's actually out on the road waiting for you to come home? Don't run from him. Who's the person that will remind you that it's never been about you maintaining a perfect record before God? But it's always been about you needing a Savior who is perfect. Who's going to remind you of that? Who has God placed in your life to be a voice in that direction? Who will remind you that you could never earn God's approval and because you're in Christ, you can't lose it? God is for us. Who reminds you of that? Who restores your hope in the righteousness of Christ that is yours not because of works you've done, but because of his mercy, because of God's grace through your faith in Jesus? Do you have that? Are you missing out on some piece of God's grace in your area? I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about a, a, a formula, but something so foundational. Can I ask even pressing a little bit further, whose voice, when they speak to you, brings you actually closer to the Lord? Because there's going to be lots of people that distract our our attention away from the Lord. But who is it that when you're done with them, after that text is sent, after the phone call is made, after you had lunch with them or had coffee with them, had a conversation with them, heard them teach, been present with them as they lead, who is it that you walk away going, I actually feel like I've been brought closer to the Lord. Whose counsel pushes you to do the next right thing? Not neutral, but like, no, no, let's do the next right thing. Let's keep pursuing the Lord. Who's willing to get in the trenches with you and say all the way we are going to be ready to meet Jesus together. I am in the trenches. You call at whatever time. You text at whatever time. I'm not going to bail on this. I'm here. I'm going to be in this fighting with you. I love you. I love the Lord. We're going to cross the finish line together. We are going to finish faithful before the Lord. Who is that? Whose presence in your life makes walking with God more desirable? So please, please take an inventory. Who are the people closest to you? It certainly isn't that you can't have friends that are not believers or friends that are, you know, maybe far from God. You can, you can have friends, but who's the closest to your heart? Who's surrounding your life? Who's surrounding your soul? Who knows the secrets of your heart? Who knows you and loves you anyway? And are there friendships that you need to develop because maybe you lack in that department? Maybe you have too many friends that pull your heart away from the Lord. And this needs to be a season where you intentionally invest, not not make excuses, but you intentionally invest and put yourself in places where there's not going to be a pull from the world, but actually a pull closer to the Lord, what places, what settings do you need to be in more of and less of so that your heart is inclined this way? Who has God placed in your life for your good? Do you need to initiate 
getting, getting together with someone, getting people together? Are you just going to say, well, I just don't see anybody, Curtis, but I'm going to wait and hopefully someone will reach out to me. Maybe it's too serious for that. Maybe there's no more time to wait. Maybe it's time to initiate and say, here's, here's where I am. Maybe that feels awkward to you. Maybe just the inertia of getting over that seems like, ah, I just don't feel like I want to try that. I just don't. Ah, what if they take it wrong? But who has God placed in your life? Could you read the Bible one-to-one with them? Could that be weekly? Could that be every other week? Could you have breakfast, lunch, or coffee? Could you have someone over to your house? Do you need to initiate that? I mean, yeah, I guess ideally someone would be coming to you, but what do you need to initiate? What do we need to do here? Because I, I actually have a vision that goes far beyond you as an individual and me individually. But I think about our church, and I think what if we were known as a community that not is particularly like super pious, but we do really, really love God. And we don't just love God individually, we love God together. And we really want to push and push and push each other to love God together. And what if people grew because of the five, ten minutes before service, after service, where we actually did get real with each other, we did ask for prayer. What if this room was filled with that kind of pushing toward being more like Christ? What if we had more encouraging texts sent to each other, pushing us to say, we are going to hope in God in this. We are going to pray about this, right? Here, I have been praying. How's it going? What if we had more of that going on? What if we came and it wasn't just a few lessons and tips and some good songs, but what if they actually worked on our heart and didn't just build uh, like people in a room, but built a community that cared for each other spiritually? What if community groups and Sunday Bible studies pushed us to look more and more like Jesus, the women's studies and gather and the men's studies and breakfasts and Wednesday evenings and Tuesday and tonight and whenever, our interactions became much more frequent. We were just pushing each other to love God more. I believe that when God does a deep work of grace, there is normally more than one person involved. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that? I would tell you, you have a question, right? Who has God put in my life for my good? So I would tell you, notice it. Maybe you write down a few names today. And that turns into a prayer of thanksgiving because you say, God, you didn't have to. Maybe you said enough smart aleck things to push a million people in your life, but there's some that are still there. This is God's grace to you. Who has God placed in your life for my good? Notice them and then reach out to them. Notice them and reach out to them. Take advantage of this means of grace. So we're wrapping up the series this morning. And I'm going to ask the musicians to come. And they're going to, going to end a little bit differently in that we're not going to sing to close our service, but they're going to play. And I don't know where you are, but I do know this card will sit on my desk because I know I've needed to remind myself of these things this very week. And I can't imagine I'm going to go too many weeks where I don't need to be reminded of these kinds of questions. And so I, I want this, these questions to sit on us today. And I want to give space to think and to pray and to consider if there's anything you need to do in the midst of this. I want us to remind ourselves we have a great God here.
and he's right in the middle of our lives. And we have brothers and sisters around us that care about where we are spiritually. And we have a God that's ready to receive us. His back is not turned to us. His arms are open to us today. And he can restore and he can give grace to walk with him faithfully. And we are not going to rely on our, our own strength. We're going to say, where is God in this? And we are not going to try to do it on our own or just panic. We are going to ask God for some things. And we're going to look around and say, who has he put in my life to help? And these are going to be God's means of grace. So I'd like the, I'd like the band to play just for a few moments. And if it's helpful to you to close your eyes and pray or to write something down or to keep eyes wide open and say, Lord, speak to me. Let's do that in this season. And then in a moment, Tyler's going to close us in prayer, all right? Well, as we think about that question today of who is God placed in your life for your good, I hope that one of the responses that you have is, is that we're drawn to gratitude to God, the one from whom all blessings flow, and he has chosen to bless us by very real people that he has put around us who we can point to and we can name and say, thank you, God. And not only that, I hope we're grateful to those people. And as Curtis mentioned, if you think about those people, let them know today. Let them know how God has used them to be the good in your life. And then lastly, think as well of those around you, even after this service, this afternoon, who God can use you to bless. And none of this on our own strength or for building ourselves up, but on God's strength and for his glory. If you're someone sitting here today and you feel like those names are hard to think of, the people who God has put around you for good, I hope to direct you to people who I think could help you. We have people on either side of our stage after the service today, men and women, who are here to pray with you, to talk with you if you have questions, if you have things you want to talk about, if you feel like you need to pray with somebody, there are people here today who want to be the good in your life. Thank you for joining us today at Ogletown. Will you join me in prayer as we close? May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen.